Welcome to the Sea Trade Maritime Podcast. You're listening to Marcus Hand, editor of Sea Trade Maritime News. In this latest in focus episode of the Maritime Podcast, we're going to be taking a deep dive into the use of methanol as a marine fuel. With growing serious interest in methanol as a green fuel for shipping, we explore why it is suitable for use as a marine fuel and the challenges faced in wide scale adoption. To guide us through this journey, our guest today is Chris Chatterton, Chief Operating Officer of the Methanol Institute. Chris, welcome to the Maritime Podcast. Thank you, Marcus. It's a pleasure to be here today. Just to start off, Chris, could you give our listeners a brief introduction to the Methanol Institute and its role in developing methanol as a marine fuel? Sure. The Methanol Institute was founded over 35 years ago, and we came into the maritime space about 2015, 2014. Since then, we've worked with all major stakeholders in the sector to include IBIA, IMO, ISO, and many other organizations to include the engine OEMs, bunkering agents, ports, and all other affiliated vessel owners and again, key stakeholders. So we're, we're really working from soup to nuts on bringing solutions to the market. And we've been quite active, like I say, in that space since about 2015. Methanol as marine fuel, what makes it suitable potentially as a solution for marine fuel going forward? Well, methanol is interesting, one, because it's been widely available for decades as a fuel and as it's maybe more well known as a petrochemical feedstock. So as a petrochemical feedstock, it's been traded internationally in a seaborne fashion, again, for over 50 years. And as such, it can be found in, in many countries, hence in many ports, as a feedstock for the petrochemical industry. And in many regions of the world, because the production process is uh, somewhat simplified, based on natural gas anyway, again, it can be found relatively easily. Pricing is quite visible, very transparent. As a fuel, it has quite a long reference as well, historically, in land-based transportation and in fuel cells as a hydrogen carrier. There's quite a bit of uh, experience uh, that's accumulated over decades of work. In a maritime capacity, delivery was taking seven dual-fuel methanol tankers back in 2016 by waterfront shipping, and that kind of kick-started the the process as we know it today. And there had been several pilots leading up to that, such as the Stenergermanica in Gothenburg, Sweden, just prior to that. More recently, Maersk has placed an order for some rather large container ships that will be uh, set to run on renewable methanol. So the dynamic of methanol within the maritime space has been quite impressive over the past six to seven years. looks to continue on that trajectory. You mentioned the methanol-powered new builds, the tankers from waterfront shipping. What's been the experience of operating methanol-fueled vessels so far? The first few vessels, of course, didn't come without their teething problems, mainly on the engine side. But those were quickly addressed. They were minor in nature. By the time they moved to the seventh, eighth and consecutive vessels, we were already dealing with an engine and fuel supply system on board that was deemed to be, uh, say, second generation already. So many advancements were made, weight savings and efficiency gains realized in the process. So based on the dual fuel principle, these same diesel engines 
we're running anywhere from 2 to 3% more efficient on methanol. They run a little bit cooler, much cleaner. Definitely there are some emission savings in the process. So the majority of the, of the boxes that we were looking to have ticked, we were able to do that. That's good to know. You mentioned in your previous answer, you mentioned about the MERSC orders. We've seen this sort of pick up, you know, more serious interest from other sectors, particularly container shipping, in terms of methanol as a fuel. What do you think's driving mm-hmm. that? Perhaps it's being driven mainly by customers who are also looking to lower their emissions footprint and equally as such by these organizations such as Maersk who are able to pass on the additional costs associated with burning alternative fuel to their customers. So it's kind of a pull and push type of relationship and would probably have more impact if there was additional policy in place to support both customers who are demanding lower carbon products, as well as producers of the, of the fuel itself and the logistics providers such as Maersk who are providing the service in a low carbon way. Is the fuel more suited to certain types of ships or certain types of trade or can it be used anywhere? Based on our experience, we started with smaller vessels and to work up. Methanol's use in, in other applications, in um, drag boat racing and performance automobile racing, is quite good. It's been the go-to fuel for fuel cell applications globally for many years because it's, again, liquid at ambient temperature. Prices are well known. That allows the project developers to easily estimate the cost of hydrogen alongside fuel cells. So that's kept methanol in that space for reformation into hydrogen alongside the fuel cell market. But with respect to maritime vessels, Again, there's really nothing internally that needs to be changed on these engines. So for the most part, engines below a megawatt, we've been able to easily convert these to methanol with the addition of a common rail and then working backwards fuel supply system, usually dual wall piping when it comes into the engine room, fuel prep rooms. It's again, low pressure system. And then uh, special fuel pumps need to be used because methanol is a bit more aggressive than, say, diesel. And then uh, adequate uh, fuel storage. So with a little bit slightly lower energy density than diesel, you need to have perhaps more fuel on board to achieve the same range. So that's the other key aspect. And then wrapping that uh, fuel system and, and engine componentry together, electronic ignition vessels with a, a proper CPU because you're basically moving twice as much fuel into the combustion chamber. Again, no internal modifications to the engine itself. It's all external. You mentioned the the energy density of the fuel, so you require more fuel. Does this impact the cargo storage on a vessel by having to have larger fuel tanks? Yes, it it can certainly. But as we've seen that as we become more comfortable with using methanol in lieu of diesel, whether it's MGO or LSFO, or even HFO, we can afford to onboard less diesel because we really only need it as a, as a pilot fuel. So these tanks could therefore perhaps in the future be further converted for methanol. But on the new builds, they come with new design features and storage capacity on board is, is adequate enough uh, working within the existing ship design parameters. Methanol as a Liquid fuel at ambient temperature requires much less infrastructure to safely store it on board than, say, a gas, any gas. Does that mean it's actually more suited to new builds than, say, retrofitting? 
We have done uh, a number of retrofits, actually. The most prominent being the Stenogrammatica, which is homeported in Gothenburg, Sweden. That was retrofitted at the Rimantajne shipyard in Poland in 2015, I believe. It was lengthened as well as uh, retrofitted for methanol. The retrofit process itself was done over four consecutive dry docks. Within a one-year period, they addressed all four units. On those particular engines, they did need to take the heads off. They were machined for a specialized embedded injector unit, again, to be able to move the amount of fuel that needed to enter the combustion chamber. But retrofits are fully, uh, I would say, feasible now and fully on board, and definitely it can be a, a real solution for those vessels which may not be ready for retirement or can still remain profitable within a specific voyage or, or trade lane. And this can be done with any vessel. Yeah. Again, we've had quite a bit of experience. And we're, in fact, we're just wrapping up a project based in the EU, which was EU funded called Fast Water. That project addressed four different vessel types, smaller vessels, dredge, ferry, cruise, and uh, other tugboats. And then there was a fifth work package, which identified a, a common retrofit package for, for these types of vessels. So it can be more consistent across uh, these vessel types. We would look to see the same type of uh, activity on ocean-going vessels of different types in the future as well, such as bulkers, dredgers, or, or perhaps uh, liners. You know, you've got to a stage where you've got your either converted or new-built methanol-powered vessel. Um, could you tell our listeners what sort of infrastructure is required for the bunkering side? Are there new requirements for this? The short answer is that there is adequate infrastructure at the moment to run off conventional methanol. So as I mentioned, methanol is widely available. We've identified over well over 100 ports that have methanol storage. So if you want conventional methanol, it's available physically, but then it has to be brought into a commercial arrangement to be bunkered. And at the moment, most ports globally are approaching it, as well as other alt fuels, in a similar fashion as, say, an alternative design project would be. So if I want to burn ammonia, I need to go to the port authority. I need them to review my proposal. My proposal is probably going to be a joint proposal together with my engine manufacturer, my ship designer, the yard and bunkering agent to provide a, a comprehensive alternative fuel based on alternative design proposal. Methanol is maybe no different in that respect. And we've seen similar proposals in place working with LNG. But now when we move into the renewable space, it becomes a little bit more complicated because this fuel is produced on a net zero basis or maybe a partial you know, carbon offset basis. So these fuels have to be further segregated. They have to be certified as carbon neutral or what have you, or lower carbon. And then they can enter the, the fuel pool in, in a particular region or port. But the same requirements are still in place, whereas the, the port will need to review some guidelines for bunkering. They will need to look at the technical readiness of the bunkering agents and the vessel that's going to perform the, the placing of that stem and make sure that it's safe and that it's uh, efficient. So we're working together with private initiatives as well as governments and port authorities globally, actually at the moment, to introduce some of these types of projects. You can learn more about the Methanol Institute at the Singapore International Bunkering 
conference and exhibition, SIBCON 2022, on 4th to 7th October in Singapore. Visit sibconsingapore.gov.sg to find out more. Obviously, one of the reasons to shift to methanol is this ability to use blue or green methanol. That sort of process of certifying that that's what you've got. Also, is this fuel available in the kind of quantities that we're going to require? I mean, you talked about most building less 16,000 TU ships. Aren't yes. Are we going to have the capacity yeah. for, for that kind of green fuel? Yeah, it's, it's a good question because uh, we have enough conventional methanol available, but based on the IMO's targeted emissions reductions using 2020 as the base year, a reference year. By 2025, they're only targeting 2%, 6% by 2030. So it's not a lot. So if your intention was to be compliant, you could use probably straight methanol and already be compliant. You wouldn't need to add even any renewable methanol or biomethanol to blend in, although you could. And certainly there are a number of organizations which are targeting to be 100% neutral fuel in their vessels from 2025 through 2030, transitioning their entire fleet in the process. But going back to the question of whether or not there's enough of this bio or renewable fuel available, again, at the moment, you could say, surely on a capacity basis, yeah, there's enough. By 2024, we'll have something like three and a half, four million tons of combined bio and, and renewable methanol fuel being produced. However, the average size of these plants is much smaller than a, a world-class methanol plant, which is maybe 2 million tons plus. These plants are much smaller, 200,000 tons, 100,000 tons per annum at the moment. Of course, they look to scale them, but that remains to be seen as to how far they can go based on their feedstock availability. So there will be a, an additional logistical exercise in moving these smaller amounts of bio or renewable methanol into a you know into an aggregated hub and there are there are many global hubs again for conventional methanol already in place whether or not these aggregated amounts of renewable or biomethanol can be set alongside these existing methanol hubs that remains to be seen certainly it only depends on the tank capacity at the port and then bunker vessel capacity you know, bringing it on board so this is all going to be about that sort of push for development from current methanol to green to blue methanol, the capacity. And again, it's highly dependent upon demand. So we have those that are looking at it purely. We want carbon neutral fuel. That's all we're going to address. So they're up here at the top of this curve. But we also have those who are, you know, for example, uh, many in the Chinese market are around here, bottom of this graphic. So they're perhaps producing low carbon conventional methanol. Maybe it's from natural gas or maybe it's even from coal, but they use carbon capture storage and they produce blue methanol. And for them, that's good enough. So it, it's highly dependent upon the, the user. So you get as similar as we saw with LNG, where it was marine fuel as a kind of a chicken and egg situation of demand yes. versus supply yeah. and who comes first. Yeah, exactly. So it, it's a, a bit the same here. And as a result, we've seen even some vessel owners uh, taking it upon themselves to invest in fuel production companies to secure that fuel or provide some additional guarantees over the securitization of the fuel. Because uh, again, uh, methanol is a highly diversified product with about 100 million tons of demand globally 
about half of that goes into petrochemical side of the business. And there is demand there for these low carbon products, carbon neutral products, just as much as there will be in the, in the fuel side. So it's a benefit that it's highly diversified. So that means there's going to be a lot of demand for the production of this type of fuel. It's not a one trick pony, such as LNG is mainly a power plant fuel. Ammonia is mainly fertilizer with some ancillary business applications, refrigeration and so forth. Methanol has literally thousands of applications. So again, there's some benefit there and perhaps it could indicate that it can also provide some fuel security because it can produce with different pathways, so to speak. So even if we go back to this, you can see there are many different sustainable pathways to production. So you don't have to be in a gas leverage region of the world to be able to produce this fuel. While I can see the benefit of being diversified, there's also perhaps means you have mind a question of, does that mean there's a lot of competition for this? And, you know, Maritime's a new sector coming yeah. in. Yeah, that's a concern for sure, because these same consumers of everything from laptops, LCD screens and cables, even porcelain, things like this are all looking to lower their emissions footprint. Renewable methanol, biomethanol can play a key role at the very basic level as a petrochemical feedstock. So yes, we really need policy to be in place to provide proper incentives as well as proper guidance and in some cases penalty as well as enforcement if we're all going to you know, move this stone together you know, in the right direction. Otherwise, we'll continue to be fragmented and for sure this, the future will be multi-fuel, but we need a bit more guidance and we need a bit more direction so that we can fine-tune products that we need that will be most efficient and best suited for a maritime application. Do you see that regulation happening? It's little by little, but it's still, I think, too early to say if it will be as effective as hope it to be. You can see that within this process, things can happen. I mean, we have a, we've had several black swan events, COVID. Now we have Russia, Ukraine situation. Maybe there will be something, you know, next year. We can't afford to keep delaying. Otherwise, we'll never be able to get on with it. So investors need transparency and need visibility to be able to invest the type of money that we're talking about to get these projects moving. That makes perfect sense, the need for that transparency for the investment going forward. Assuming you've got to that point where you've made that investment in the ship, secured your supply, could you tell our listeners, are there any sorts of particular requirements in terms of training for the crew? For example, if you've got LNG fuel, which our listeners will have heard bit about in some previous episodes, there are quite there are quite a lot of requirements for the crew for handling yeah. gas powered ships. Is this the same for methanol? Yeah, as a low flashpoint fuel, definitely there are some things to consider and we're beginning to address those as well. We're we're working with one group in particular that's a ship management company, global, well known, works under the Norwegian flag. And um, we're planning to create and, and then administer Courses, one basic course for any of those crew that are going to be um, operating a, a methanol dual fuel vessel, as well as an advanced course, likely for those crew members who are around the engine room or have a little bit more closer contact with the fuel itself. For sure, there are requirements for these, but they're not, I think, they're not over the top. It's quite simple and it's quite fundamental. Methanol is simple to understand. Uh, and that's, uh, again, what, one of the benefits. Training can be very efficiently and very effectively introduced. And at the basic level, 
there's almost not really even a need to be on board to be able to communicate information and, and knowledge to certify these crew members to be able to, to operate a, a methanol dual fuel carrier. And when it comes to the bunkering part of this, are there any sort of additional safety handling requirements? For sure. I mean, uh, again, as a low flashpoint fuel, safety is a little bit different, but I, I guess one way to put it would be if we're looking at methanol compared to diesel, compared to gasoline, which all three of these we move around the world in product carriers, there's really no difference in handling you know, either of these fuels. And these are all fuels that many people are accustomed to using firsthand when, when you pull up to the four quarts in your, in your automobile or your heavy duty truck and you're pumping the fuel yourself into your vehicle. Methanol is you know, no difference. There are, there are some basic things, of course, to, to be aware of, but those can be addressed and overcome and communicated fully to make it a safe environment. For example, it was suggested that methanol is toxic. Yes, of course it is. If you ingest 23-24 ml, it could be fatal Yeah, if you don't get treatment. But by the same token, if you're ingesting 23-24 ml of diesel or gasoline, you would have the same consequences. Yeah? From a fumes perspective and within all enclosed spaces on board, I think it's 60 turns per minute to air circulation. And they have a lot of minimal requirements, gas detection everywhere in the event that there is a gas leak. But again, methanol tends to vent down gravity, both as a liquid and as a fumes. So it's heavier than atmospheric air. So it's a little bit easier in that respect to identify, I guess you could say. And modern technology has allowed us to readily address that. Again, with gas detection, infrared flame detection, and then these work within you know milliseconds of each other to discharge some form of flame retardant material, whether it's foam-based or it's mist water or a combination of the two. It can be very safe. And in, and in fact, the number of industrial incidents on board involving methanol is, is, is very limited. You're hard-pressed to even find any of these. Obviously, ship's fuel is dangerous of all types, and some uh, ships carry many dangerous cargoes. So yeah. in that sense, it's nothing new. I understand that. Just looking forward, you mentioned earlier, we're looking at a multi-fuel future. Where does methanol sit in that? That's a good question. I mean, um, it's hard to say other than... Uh, the future definitely will be multi-fuel. So there will certainly be those regions of the world which are more advantaged for maybe one fuel or another. For example, in Europe, biofuel can be a reality. Biogas you know, is, is a reality. Biomethane, it's already coming to market. Other regions aren't as advanced in that respect. Maybe South America could be one potential market. The Middle East, Australia have abundant solar and wind in some cases. So there's, a, again, more advantages to perhaps producing green hydrogen, which can then be moved into either ammonia production or methanol production. So uh, again, that will largely depend on their customer base and who they're selling what and their trade lanes. And then for some, it could be that uh, they, they they have you know fewer, much fewer options and they will have to just take the least cost most efficient um, form of deleveraging, you know, CO2 equivalent uh, emissions uh, going forward. So 
methanol can play a, a very key role immediately. So that's, again, one of the benefits of methanol is it's, it's available now. Um, it's not a fuel that you would have to you know, wait and see what happens over the next few years. And it's the bio element is certainly coming, and that's been forecast quite prominently by the International Renewable Energy Association, a buildup of some fivefold over the next 30 years based on bio and renewable methanol. So in the bunker market, I mean, I, I, I could see uh, easily, uh, you know, somewhere around maybe 8 to 10% of the market by 2030, 2035. It's a realistic possibility. A lot depends on, again, on policy, but uh, if the policy is uh, effective, then there are only two fuels to be sure that are approved by IMO at the moment. That's LNG and methanol. So if you want to color outside the box, you have to be a bit more creative. And creativity doesn't come without cost. Thank you for listening to the Maritime Podcast. Make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing on the app of your choice. Until next week's episode, stay safe.